0: So this month I was pretty excited that I think it's kind of a battle of the boroughs. I think that's what's happening here. We have um we have some good Queens representation, some good Bronx representation and some Brooklyn happening. So we can pick our favorites at the end and like pin imaginary awards on people for the best borough. So, you know, Um, That'd be great. Hi, this is Catherine Lasota, host of LIC Reading Series, a monthly event at LIC Bar in Long Island City, Queens. In this episode, you're going to hear the readings from our June 14, 2016 event, which took place only two days after the Pulse nightclub shooting, and so we dedicated this evening to the victims who lost their lives in that tragedy. In this event, we had readers who were representing three different boroughs of New York City, Joe Oconquo, Rob Spillman, and Charlie Vasquez. And as always, because we're so proud of Queens, we did make each of our readers share a brief personal anecdote about Queens before they read from their work. If you're interested in hearing the panel discussion from this evening, just listen to our next episode. And now let's start our evening with our first reader, Joe Aconquo. So our first reader is Joe Okonkwo. He is a Pushcart Prize nominee, who has had stories published in a variety of print and online venues including Promethean, Penumbra Literary Magazine, Chelsea Station, Shotgun Honey, and Best Gay Stories 2015. Joe serves as prose editor at Newtown Literary. That's a journal in Queens, guys, that publishes Queens writers. And they're now, you're now, uh, I think, paying all the contributors to Newtown Literary, which is really exciting. Um, and there's open submissions right now, is that right? Till July 10th. Til July 10th. So Queen's writers, get your work into Newtown Literary. In 2017, he will take the reins as editor of List Press's annual Best Gay Stories anthology. Jazz Moon is his debut novel. Let's welcome Joe to the stage, guys.
1: Thank you. Uh, So for my Queen's story, I've lived in New York now 16 years as of last week, actually. And uh, shortly after I uh, moved here, I started dating someone. And he he told me one night on the phone that he had uh, told a friend of his, oh, yeah, I'm dating this new guy who just moved here from from, uh, from Houston. He's living in Queens. And he relayed to me that this, this friend that he told about me was just so shocked that anybody would come to New York to live in Queens, he didn't understand that. And ever since, ever since then, every now and again, when I tell someone I live in Queens, the first thing they say is, "That's far. That's so far." One person even even told me that uh, said, those of us in Manhattan think of Queens as the as the nether the nether regions, and I just think that's so incredibly rude. And I. <laughs> A- and I take it personally because this is this is my home, this is my neighborhood. So why would you say something like that about someone's someone's home? So if anyone wants to say anything negative about Queens, go fuck yourself. That's, so. so this is from uh, my debut novel, Jazz Moon. It just came out a uh, week before last, and it's about. Uh, the Har- it's a set up against the backdrop of the Harlem Renaissance and Jazz Age Paris. So I'm going to read the, uh, the first chapter. Harlem had been hit by a hurricane. It was raining cats and jazz. White folks called it race music. Old colored folks branded it the devil's music because its saucy beats made men pump their hips in slow pirouettes and women lift their skirts above the knee with a sweltering look that said, come and get it, Papa. But whatever you called it, it was everywhere. Gliding out of glossy nightclubs, smoking lush and torrid out of basement speakeasies, in the streets, louder than a growling subway train. And if you ventured down Lenox Avenue or 125th Street, you wouldn't be surprised to pass a first-floor apartment, window open, and glimpse a couple dancing as jazz crackled out of a phonograph. You'd stand on that sidewalk, right outside their window, and watch them for a while. But they wouldn't even notice you. In 1925, the devil did his best work in Jungle Alley. A stretch of 133rd Street between Lenox and 7th Avenues splattered with glittering clubs where Duke Ellington brushstroked his jazz canvas, cafe chorus cuties high-kicked it, and a hoofing Bojangles took and shook center stage. Clubs gorged themselves on white swells from downtown drawn to the sensual, the primitive, the exotic, who, after seeing a Cole Porter musical on Broadway or a Verdi opera at the Met, cabbed it to Harlem in droves to slum to the tune of Sweet Georgia Brown and romp in the jungle of their uptown backyard. The swells paid good money to see Negroes sing and dance in supper clubs, but drew the line at sharing supper, which is why Ben and Angeline, arm in arm, half walking, half prancing up 7th Avenue, didn't bother with the clubs in Jungle Alley. They bypassed a hundred and thirty third Street altogether and shot onto a hundred and thirty sixth instead, laughing like fools the whole time. You have a good time, Angel? Ben said. Ooh, baby, Angeline said, between giggles. That party was jumpin'. Hot, hot, hot. Yeah, Donny Boy know how to swing it. And where'd he learn to cook? Them pig's feet and black eyed peas reminded me of back home. Angeline said they rollicked down 136th the street was besieged with people leaving rent parties clubs picture shows most laughing like Ben and Angeline some downright drunk and you could smell reefer everywhere an eternal line of brownstones rose above them on either side of the street high flights of steps with black wrought iron railings ascending to stoops where people talked and drank Folks hung out of windows or sat on fire escapes and shouted down to the people on the stoops or to passers-by on the sidewalk as taxis streaked by. And it was hot. 2 a.m., and the July air was so humid and thick, Ben felt like he was wading through it. He was tempted to loosen his tie for some relief, but on Saturday night, he wanted to shine. Ben, you remember where we going? What's this lap joint called? angeline said teddies all the hepcats go there reggie told me about it says the band's a killer diller that's great baby but maybe we should go on home and kill some dill in private they walked side by side but she managed to nudge her breasts against him if you know what i mean girl you a mess They heard the music before they even descended the short flight of steps to the basement bar. The rough concrete floor held two dozen rickety tables crushed in close together and filled with boisterous men in tight suits and chicks in beaded dresses and pearl-studded headbands. The air was steeped in smoke from cigars, cigarettes, and reefer. The July heat made it steam. Teddys vibrated with the clinking of glasses and rousing conversations and torrents of laughter. At the rear of the club, a band. Piano, drums, banjo, and trombone, beating it out and how. A bit of light hit the stage, with the rest of Teddys smothered in shadows. Hello, suckers! The hostess greeted them, voice thundering, her abundant frame housed in a loose-fitting black dress decked with an ocean of multicolored beads and sequins. The low-cut number showed off her big breasts. A horsehair wig decorated with a rose sat atop her head, and she carried a fluffy red feather boa around her ample shoulders. Welcome to Teddy's, she said, where the jazz is hot and the boot and the liquor's bootlegging cold. Just y'all two tonight? Ooh, girl, where'd you find this cat? If I was you, I wouldn't come in here. I'd take him home and blow his... top. Honey, I'ma do just that, Angeline said. A couple of drinks and we out of here. Ben slung her an admonishing look. She knew he didn't favor such graphic talk in public. The hostess laughed, a big, robust guffaw. Girl, I heard that. Y'all come with me. She got between them, hooked her arms in theirs, and guided them to a table. A woman appeared on stage just as they sat down, singing in a raspy, down-home voice, the kind that made you think she was the blues. My man show ain't lazy. He goes all day and works downtown. My man sure ain't lazy, he goes all day and works downtown. When he comes home at night, I make him turn my damper down. A waitress arrived at the table, in her sleeveless satin dress with its thigh-high hem. She looked like a chorus girl in one of those all-colored musical reviews. She carried a a tray with two teacups, which she placed before Ben and Angeline. They each took a big gulp of tea. It sent a shudder from their eyebrows to their toes. Ben recovered first. This some good damn tea. His voice was hoarse. Righteous, Angeline said. Benny. She tickled her knee against his under the table. Benny, she said again, her voice voice across between an innocent coo and a seductive purr. Can't wait to get you home. The spot where she rubbed his knee burned. Without warning, she leaned over and kissed him, rough, her tongue flicking over his lips. Ben didn't like doing this in, pu- in front of people, but had no choice but to respond in kind. Yeah, man, someone behind them yelled. You go on and kiss that chick. Others chimed in, cheering them on as they kissed. Mm hmm. That's his main queen. <laughs> I can see that. She show is, and she is a good piece of barbecue. That chick show is some fine dinner. <laughs> the crowd whooped and uh, the crowd whooped and applauded as if Ben and Angeline were the opening act of a floor show. She jerked away. He jerked away from her, leaving her reeling from the sudden stop. He was embarrassed, but intoxicated too. The gin, the crowd the salty funk of sweat, and the odor of reefer wafting through the place. And now the real show began as the hostess mounted the stage, big breasts leading the way, dress rustling as she climbed the steps. Hey, suckers, how y'all doing tonight? Everybody got enough tea? (laughs) Glad to hear it, because at Teddy's, it's always tea time. But you know what, honey? I need me a man to pour my tea right out of a nice, long spout. You know that's right. If, if you know a man got a good spout, you send him right on over. And if he ain't got a good spout, tell him to keep his ass home with his wife. And if anyone here tonight got a good spout, tell him to meet me in the back room. Mm-hmm. Well, suckers, we got a good show for y'all tonight, so let's get started. Ladies and gentlemen, Teddy's is proud to present to y'all the Blackberry Jam, featuring sweet baby back Johnston. The light dimmed more. The audience clapped. Ben watched as a cat with a trumpet came up on stage and began to play. Mellow. That was the only word Ben could think of to describe baby back Johnston. No fanfare like Armstrong. Armstrong just a sound that was blue and smooth. One moment it floated up with the reefer smoke, the next it was low down. Baby Back took that horn through a swirling maze of rhythm as the band underscored his every lick. He caressed those flats and sharps, fondled those swingin' eighth notes, fingered that melody till it cried. Yeah, Baby Back broke it up. The crowd fell out. Ben was hypnotized. Hypnotized by Baby Back's horn, a horn attached to a face coffee-colored and soft as polish. A tall man, his broad shoulders flared down to a trim waist accentuated by his tight suit. His eyes were shut lightly as he blew, as he blew that horn. Horn. Thank you. Let's
0: give it up for Joe Conquay. That was amazing reading. Um, I love it when people sing when they're up here. That was it's like one of my favorites. So racing the bar, guys. You gotta sing when you're up here. No oh, yeah. Um but yeah, so we we had our queens, we're moving on to our Bronx representation uh with charlie vasquez he's an author as well as director of the bronx writer center at bronx council on the arts he's published two novels buzz in israel and contraband which is available here from a story bookshop as well as short stories and poetry also from 2008 to 2011 he ran the east village reading series panic his latest novel trapped in el moro and its accompanying short story cycle, are set in Puerto Rico, and explore historical themes told through suspense and terror tale lenses. Let's welcome Charlie to the stage.
2: Um, This is good. Cool. So, um, just really quickly, um, Contraband, I published over five years ago. Um, And when Catherine asked me to read i thought oh sure i'll read and then i thought well what the hell am i going to read from because in the last uh five years i've really only published short stories and poetry while i've been developing this new um these new puerto rico uh terror tales um but none of those are published yet so i decided to read from what i had um available in in actual book form and then life took an interesting turn this past weekend and um contraband sort of took on a new life for me as I will share with you Um, and I was I printed out the sort of the scene I'll be reading from and you know Charlie in 2016 red pending Charlie from 2010 I tried not to hack it up huh oh the Queen's anecdote yes I'll share the Queen's anecdote and then I'll read Um, I had a few of them but I decided to to stick to the theme tonight so uh back when I was I was living on the West Coast. I lived on the West Coast for 17 years. I was born and raised in the Bronx, by the way. Um I was back visiting and uh, I was a wild very wild young man and I was at Ties on Christopher Street, which is a, a sort of a notorious bear bar. And I don't know what I was doing back then because back then I was into like BDSM and the leather scene and all that, but I happened to be at, I happened to be at Ties and uh I met a really lovely gentleman who we went back to his place in Astoria, in the, sort of the Greek, the Greek neighborhood there. And we had a lovely time. This is pre-Facebook, you know, pre-smartphones and all this. I think I was on the Internet in those years. Um, and anyway, we sort of had made plans to reconnect after um, basically the one-night stand. And he wrote his phone number down for me. And he said, well, why don't you write your phone number down for me, too? I said, don't worry about it. When I, when I get back, I'll call you. And um, I really meant to sort of follow up with him, and I lost the phone number on my way home, and there was no way to find him again. And it was one of those, uh, I, I thought it was kind of a funny story. I think I had a boyfriend on the West Coast, but that's another, <laughs> that's a story for another day. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna sort of like be hanging myself um, as, as far as um, what I'm reading, but this reading isn't for me today. Um, This is dedicated to the the nightclub um, victims in Orlando. From Contraband. I pushed the heavy bullet-ridden door open. Its hinges creaked, alerting all inside. I was astonished by their daring numbers, an infestation of flickering sparks. The barroom was candlelit and asking for the wrong attention. A dark forest of twinkling eyes, both frightened and ecstatic followed me like searchlights when I walked in. Limbs and torsos and faces huddled in dark corners, exploring the forbidden contours of the body and soul, the deepest stab at the revolution one could thrust. I never thought I'd see the day when the masks of terror and ecstasy would look identical. They were on every face. It was there that I met a hall of lunars, though I wasn't comfortable acknowledging this at first, and wondered what my role in such a society would be. Some were painted like glittering birds of paradise, reclining seductively like insect-limbed starlets, red lips crooked and pinched tight, their frayed dresses soliciting caresses from the dirty rubble. One silhouette pulled lascivious garments onto its body with an abandon difficult to describe. I saw no one there that was like me, I did not see a face I could relate to. They were drunk and smoking and dancing, dressed in dangerous fashions, like storybook creatures snapping compact mirrors shut, rounding their lips to suggest seamy pleasures. I began to understand. Every moment could be the last. I watched as disheveled men, shy young lads, and a few mannish women danced in a circle, their arms overlapping, their feet speaking the language of the poisons that filled their overflowing cups. When the wind blew in, the curtains from the only window facing the ocean, I mistook it for storming soldiers. I was not sure where to sit and no one spoke to me at first. I even wondered if they thought me a spy, a snitch, considering how I was dressed. I sat at a large table and was greeted by a tall and dark man of earthly charm. I did not like admitting this, but his beauty made every cell in my body pulse with new life. He was a carved mahogany statue come to life, strong under a perfumed sheen of sweat that smelled of the finest Indian sandalwood. His clothes hung loosely on his solid body and candlelight reflected off his skin like the moon on seawater. As soon as these thoughts and visions electrified me, I realized he was shaking my hand. Volfango, I said to him, pulling my hand back from his warm and strong grip. That's quite a name, he said skeptically. I'm Alto, and where would you like to go, Volfango? His teeth white as bones on a desert floor. Here is fine for now, I said. Maybe for now, he agreed, sitting back and widening his powerful chest dragging his root-like fingers away from me i was still on alert i had made it a habit to always be on alert no matter how intoxicating the distraction i don't understand i said there's an underside here in santa prieta but it's small you might want to consider an eventual move to a larger one for your safety it was jarring when a man could conjure my past without knowing so or did he He was a retired dancer, he informed me, breaking the ice with easy comfort. His eyes shone like diamonds whenever I caught them at the right angle, and his deep wolfish laugh triggered earthquakes in me. My defenses crumbled in his presence. He slid his chair closer and assured me in island Spanish, I want to tell you something in case you're wondering. Yes, I asked, while sipping a drink that tasted of rat poison tinged with lime. If you're certain you're a lunar, I don't even know who you are, I said. I'm the one who's taking you where you want to go, he informed me, leaning back. I chose lunacy long ago, if that's what you mean, I told him, turning my eyes away from his dark grace. His outburst of laughter stunned many around us. It was as a flash of artillery, a blast through the chest. Then why are you hiding your eyes, he asked me. It's a habit. A habit? That's what I said. Well, you don't have to here, he assured me, undressing my inhibitions. Staring him in the eyes, I said, I doubt that'll be a problem. The sun sank behind the mountains, casting a long shadow over the coast, which slid into the cantina like a stalking cat, caressing all inside with the secrets of twilight. Candle fire became brighter and people got closer to one another, huddling in nervous clusters of red feathers, unfastened camouflage fatigues, and tattered fashions of the past. Their eyes, and perhaps even mine, flickered more intensely as dusk gave way to night, a forest of creature eyes. A compassionate smile painted Alto's face with a wash of papaya flesh. He shone like a deity in fiery semi-darkness and became to me, in those few ten seconds, a spiritual beacon. I still cannot rationalize those feelings, but that was how it felt at the time. The whole of my body and soul listened to him as if he were a messiah, a man sent from far away to dispel lies and teach universal truths. I tried to convey a neutral impression, enthralled by his voice. Alto knew this. What are you thinking about, he asked, laughing kindly. I can't say. I'd always been told that my face betrayed the feelings in my heart, and I could see the desiring colors and hues of my eyes reflecting in his. His eyes wandered away from mine while he spoke to study my arms and hair and mouth. My fear of all the potential things he could become to me became noise in my head. I realized in the midst of the war inside of me that there was a sudden commotion growing around us. It got louder and infused my bones with confusion and worry and the instinct to flee like a wild animal set loose of its cage overcame me. Alto detected my crisis and leaned forward to console me, to whisper something from his lips to mine, just as a storm of hissing bullets and booming artillery began piercing the battered walls and shattering the windows around us. We fell to the floor, avoiding hot projectiles and razor-edged glass. I grabbed my suitcase, dragging it behind me. Alto led the crawl across the imploding room and others followed, hoping he would lead us to freedom. People were choking and screaming. I couldn't stop thinking about those who didn't make it, those who bled on the floor they'd been dancing on just moments before, calling out the names of people who weren't there, the living and the dead they began seeing around them. We tumbled down a flight of carpeted stairs and rolled down another. I could see nothing or very little and followed the sound of Alto and his deep breathing. I panted, heaving the desperate sounds of a frightened animal as we scurried along the filthy floor to a hatch. I watched as Alto dove into the unknown. He cushioned my landing when I followed him and set me aside to catch the others who had minor injuries and were drunk and were crying. There were six of us. The rest had perished or surrendered. Alto slid the hatch cover back into place from underneath and locked it. In a crawl space no wider than a meter and about as high, we crawled until he located a second-access hole where a ladder took us down to a solid metal door. Kicking a scorpion aside, he unlocked the door with shaking hands, assuring us we're safe now. The others studied Alto and I with weary and panicked eyes as the six of us stumbled into a humid tunnel that led to the murky labyrinth known as the Santa Prieta underside. Where did the light in their eyes go, I thought? Even I shivered at the crossroads between two worlds, wondering what I'd be stepping into and dreading what i left behind, and what I'd soon be dreading where I'd arrived and wondered, wondering about everything I'd left behind. The low-ceiling corridor was lined with dozens of grimy men in various states of contemplation and confusion. Upon reaching a common area of fresh and moist concrete walls, a feeling of safety fell upon me, as excited shadows swarmed us, offering bottles of water and bandage and soothing fruit. They were as a race of forest creatures, bearded and and clawed and hairy, smelling as if they'd never once bathed. Despite the jolt of shock I felt upon seeing these Santa Prieta undersiders, I vowed never to return above after what I'd seen. It was then that a tunnel brother stepped away from the small crowd before us and bowed, saying, Bienvenidos. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Charlie Vasquez. Um, I kind of, uh, if it's okay, I just want to mention something that I, I picked up that I saw that you mentioned about Contraband, because I really love this this quote, if that's okay. Which we also have, from Astoria Bookshop. What? Beautiful. Because um, you mentioned it, your main character is referred to as a lunar. And there's these, and the, it's, I think he said uh, there are lunar and solar so- societies in contraband's world. The solar society functions in the daytime and is mainstream and family and state-driven. Lunars question authority, are nocturnal, more revolution-driven, and are more individualistic. They are leaders. They are queer. They are women. They are magicians and insane people. They are free. Not too far from the truth, I think. <laughs> You guys, we have so much more to go, so much more awesomeness to go. We are going to have our third reader of the night, and this is Rob Spillman. Uh, Rob is the editor of Tin House Magazine and editorial advisor of Tin House Books. He's also the 2015 recipient of the Penn Nora, Nora Maggot no, right? Award for Editing. Rob was previously the monthly book columnist for Details Magazine and is a contributor of book reviews and essays to Salon and Book Forum. He's written for the Boston Review, GQ, Details, the New York Times Book Review, Rolling Stone, Spin, Sports Illustrated, Vanity Fair, and Vogue, among other magazines and newspapers. He's also worked for Random House, Vanity Fair, and The New Yorker and taught at various MFA programs, including Columbia University. His acclaimed debut memoir, All Tomorrow's Parties, was published by Grove Press in April of 2016. Let's welcome Rob.
3: Thanks so much. All right, my queen story. Uh, I went to uh, college in Baltimore. And I had a I went to a really crappy state school in Baltimore. But I had a um friend at Johns Hopkins who was from Means and uh his parents had a uh, Upper East Side amazing place that looked out over the Queensboro Bridge. And in college I um I studied psychology and ran track. That was why I was there. And um, <laughs> So I was running 90 miles a week. And uh, that's that was like my kind of what I did. And so even though I was coming up here for a party weekend, I scheduled in a 14 mile run. And I tracked from his apartment, I could see Queens. So I was like, I'll just run, you know, up through Randall's Island into Queens and back over the Queensboro Bridge. Um, it'll be a beautiful fourteen-mile loop, and uh, so this is nineteen eighty-two. The Queens waterfront was kind of rough, but it was kind of it was you know a really exciting run. And then uh, you know everything is cool. Uh, I have no money. I have no ID. No nothing on me. And I get to the base of the Queensboro Bridge, and it's under construction, and the pedestrian lanes are closed. So I've at this point I've run twelve and a half miles, and so I. Quickly do the math. I can re- retrace my steps and run 25 miles on the day. Um, jump the turnstiles and uh, try to go back um, that way. Um, and I can see his apartment just over the river. I was like, "Fuck it! I'm just gonna swim? swim." I didn't. I didn't. I didn't think of that. It was hot enough. I could have done that, but. Now instead, there were orange cones that went right down the center of the the Queensboro Bridge. So I ran straight through the Queensboro Bridge, uh, hurdling the orange cones, (laughs) with traffic going by on each way, and I was not arrested. And I ran really fast and escaped Queens. So. So I could have lived here for the rest of my life, but uh, you know, I, I made it back. All right. So, um, so like everybody else, I've been uh, pretty upset by the news, and um, was uh, thinking a lot about my father because I, uh, my father is gay, and I grew up uh, mainly with single gay father in the Berlin opera world, and was he's from central kentucky and uh sort of struggled with his sexuality for a very long time um I, up until you know i was a little kid so i was thinking about all the the discrimination he faced and um you know how hard his life has been and he's 80 years old now and he's still living you know he lives in uh boulder and, you know, I, I think that he has a very safe, happy existence. And then something like this happens and uh, sort of brings it all home for me. So I was thinking about reading something about him, but then I thought I'll read something actually just a little more celebratory since that's kind of the mood I think we're going for. So my memoir um, bounces back and forth between growing up in the Berlin gay opera world and my return to Berlin when the wall came down. Uh, Right after the wall came down, I went and lived in the east side um, uh, before reunification. So I'm just gonna read right from the beginning. And uh, each chapter has its own soundtrack and a quote that kicks it off. And uh, chapter one is, the quote is, switch glasses, um, art should be life, it's an imitation of life, It should have some humanity in it. That's John Lydon, a.k.a. Johnny Rotten. The soundtrack is the Sex Pistols, Holiday in the Sun from 1977. This must be the place. I point to the street signs above us, then back down at the flyer. If you say so, Elisa says. Where else should we possibly be, I ask and raise my glass. Four months before reunification, we are drinking a previously impossible-to-obtain West German wine at a makeshift sidewalk cafe stumbling distance from our illegal cold water flat. Although the wall has fallen the previous October, West German authorities don't yet have authority to cross into the East. When the German Democratic Republic's police wages vanished, so did they. The only authority left here is the elite riot police and the remnants of the GDR's army. They keep order by bashing the skinheads and anarchists in running street battles every night. We haven't seen many other Westerners on this side of the wall. Most are staying away until reunification. Young East Germans have looked out for us, 25-year-old Americans, married less than two years, self-proclaimed Bohemians crazy enough to live in the midst of their chaos. But to us, it doesn't feel crazy. There's something alive and magical in the air. What it must have been like in the 20s when Marlene Dietrich was roaming the risque drag clubs in men's clothes, when culture and politics collided and the possibilities were revolutionary. Now, for East Germans, Berlin is reborn, and in the month that we've been living here, everything feels possible. Two weeks ago, this wine bar was a boarded-up food market. Young locals pooled their money and drove through a gap in the wall in a battered Wartburg which they filled with cases of West German wine then smashed down the market store and served the wine on a sidewalk on the sidewalk on upturned cable spools scavenged from the abandoned warehouses along the eastern side of the wall thus the Prenzlauer Berg wine bar was born and thus we became regulars. Doing what was unthinkable only a year ago, publicly downing a whole bottle of cold 1989 Feldzerland vine from the Rhine. Not that there still aren't risks. Almost every single night, the sirens sound blaring like World War II air raid warnings, winding up louder and louder, signaling that the riot police are coming in to clear the skinheads who are trying to firebomb the autonoman squats nearby. All up and down our block, the anarchists have taken over abandoned buildings and have painted them pink and are flying old East German flags with the hammers and compasses cut out of their centers. When the riot police charge in, they bust any and all heads they see. If the clashes aren't on our street, we'll wait out the alarm in our bullet-pocked archway, unrepaired since World War II. And if the melee is on our street, we'll flee up the four flights to our apartment. The sun is bleeding down, streaking East Berlin's grays and browns with a fiery orange and red, warming the cold gray buildings to create a pocket of calm, an oasis perfect for sharing our nightly bottle of wine before we head off to the CV, our other regular neighborhood bar just across the park. I pick up the hand-drawn flyer that the young East German has dropped on our table, try to make sense of it. Black and red concentric circles telescoped down to a black X with the names Dunkerstrasse and Lederstrasse written below. We are sitting directly under the street signs for Dunkerstrasse and Lederstrasse. Thanks, I tell Michael. He's one of the earnest Bat Theater studio guys who are still putting on plays and happenings in the appropriated ex-government buildings despite or to spite the vanished socialist subsidies but what is it? A rave, he replies, all business. Rave? I remember it's, it's 1990. Yeah. Rave. A big dance, mostly illegal, held in big illegal spaces. Like here, I ask, not getting it. I look to Elisa, but she also doesn't understand. How do you mean, Michael asks? I point to the street names on the flyer and on the street names above us, and his confusion cracks into a smile. No, 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 no. We meet here tomorrow night, starting at midnight. Every half hour, one of us will come here and take you to the place of the rave. (laughs) Which is where, I ask? (laughs) You Americans are funny, yes? (laughs) We debate going to the rave whatever a rave is, but it isn't much of a debate. Of course I'm gonna jump into the abyss. That's what I do, throw myself into the unknown. So 24 hours later, flyer in hand at exactly midnight, I jump on the back of a sparkling blue Vespa, driven by a young East German I hardly know who has promised to take me someplace secret and spectacular. Michael takes off before the other Vespa, sparkling red, pulls to a stop in front of Elisa. She scrambles behind the unknown woman. They set off after us. I hold tight and we fly the two block length of Helmholtzplatz Park, then past the even smaller Kolbitzplatz Park, weaving our way through scattered cobblestones and torched communist cardboard cars, Wartburgs and Trabants stacked like charred logs under the dead street lamps. I feel like I'm in Fellini's Roma. A camera mounted on a scooter gliding through Rome at night. The Vespa's soft, sweeping light illuminating ancient fountains and statues. But in reality, in the here and now, this Vespa's narrow beam of weak white light is cutting through the stark blackness, catching obstacles so that we don't crash out on the cobbles. Last night's battle between the skinheads and anarchists has coated the streets with smashed Molotovs. Michael tries to avoid the bigger shards as we zigzag out of Prenzlauerberg and toward the wall. Around the corners, I check behind for the trailing Vespa's yellow beam. I briefly wonder if Elisa is scared or thrilled. She doesn't speak German, and I don't know how much English her driver has. I shelve that worry as we are now heading straight for the wall, but a short block away, Michael lurches us hard right along a road that parallels the clean gray slabs of concrete. We cruise past long-abandoned warehouses and industrial buildings, and in each intersection I see the wall, a hundred feet to the left, its faintly iridescent whitish gray, visible for a second, then gone. Glimpse, gone again. Hang on, Michael says, and switches off his light. He drives blind for a bumpy minute, then swings the Vespa left toward a warehouse, a large dark door coming into focus. It opens right before we reach it, then slams shut as soon as we are inside pitch black. Where is Elisa? Should I run out? Before I reach full-on panic, the door flies open and the second Vespa coasts in. The door bangs shut with a metallic clang and several flashlights click on. Here, you will need this, Michael says, and hands me a small plastic flashlight. I aim the light at Elisa, who gives me a questioning look, and I shrug. Bitte, gehen Sie jetzt, a young man says, impatiently pointing his flashlight toward the water-stained back of the room. His eyes are all pupil and he is sweating, his jaw fiercely working over a piece of gum. I wave goodbye to Michael and follow the sweating man to the other side of the small white tiled room and through a set of steel doors that lead to a stairwell. Banish all bad thoughts. We're not going to get rolled, it's all good. Follow the signs. I squeeze Elisa's hand to reassure her and myself. We skip down one flight of steps, then another, trying to keep up with our hopped-up leader. Two floors below street level, our Orpheus pushes open a creaky black metal door, revealing a vast, flooded basement, strewn with rubble and industrial detritus. Was gibt's, I ask. And our guide snorts. He explains in German, which I quickly translate for Elisa, that we are in an old ball-bearing factory. He tells me this as he dances across long sagging boards stretched between cinder block islands. Our flashlight beams ricochet off the oily water, which has a ferrous, noxious reek. And I picture my foot dissolving in it as if it were sulfuric acid. (laughs) A faint, far off beat, a fast, steady thump, 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 matches the pulse in my ears. Is there another room to the factory? I call after our guide, repeating the question in English for Elisa. No, no, he replies. The party isn't in here. This is only the passageway. Before I can begin to think about where we are heading, on the other side of the waterlogged basement, a six-foot-wide hole opens into a dank tunnel. The thump, thump, thump of music is now clear, and up ahead, a bright light pulls me forward. In Excuse me, my new friend says, shining his flashlight over my shoulder. I turn around, and Elisa catches up to us. She gives me her, what have you gotten me into look, and I give her my, you agreed to this look back. (laughs) I silently also give her what I hope is reassurance, and I think she's on the same page, but I really don't care, because we're obviously on the cusp of something weird and quite possibly wonderful. Where are we, I once more ask our guide, who moves aside so that we can be the first to step through the hole and into a cavernous space constructed of gray granite blocks, the vaulted ceiling sweeping up a good hundred feet. People are dancing everywhere, on piles of paving stones and railroad ties and in the long trench that runs through the center of the giant space. They are dancing to the loud, steady, bass-heavy electronic music, something that sounds like craft work crossed with Donna Summer. (laughs) Dancers cast huge shadows from the low, icy white strobe lights ringing the room. Atop a Lincoln log-like construction of scavenged railroad ties perch two sets of turntables and two young men with black bubble headphones who are bobbing along to the music. Where are we, I shout. Under the wall, our guide yells. This is an old subway station from before the war, closed off for 40 years. Now we break through and have a rave. I never want to leave, I say out loud, I think. I can't believe this. We are literally between countries, under two countries. I close my eyes and let the concussive bass vibrate through my body. I can feel the beat of my heart aligning with the beat of the music. I'm dissolving, breaking into a million particles. I am nowhere, I am home. Thank you.
0: That's today's show. If you like what you heard, tell a friend or leave a review wherever you found us. Special thanks to LIC Bar, the Astoria Bookshop, and our amazing intern, Nadine Santoro. A big thank you to our sponsors over the years. LIC Corner Cafe, Sweetleaf Coffee, Court Square Diner, and the Gantry Restaurant. This episode was recorded by Carl Jacob and mixed and edited by Justin Alvarez. Our theme music is by Pat Irwin. The LIC Reading Series is made possible in part by the Queen's Council on the Arts with public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. I'm your host, Catherine Lasota. See you next time in Queens.